Hello and welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. On the show this week, Earth to Cop-Outs. World leaders fly their private jets to Glasgow to discuss how to stop doing that. Lost in translation, Johnson and Macron continue to pull each other's pigtails. And it is 300 days from those four hours at the Capitol. Does the new documentary tell us more about what happened? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Fanbule. Thanks for having me back. Hello, Miata. Last week, we saw the release of the autumn bad budget and spending review. The immediate reaction is necessarily based on the bits of the budget the government has decided to highlight. In the days that follow, the detail is examined and often different things emerge. A week on, have any patterns emerged from that more detailed examination that do not tally with initial impressions, do you think? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think on the day, uh, if you like, the big story uh, from the budget was uh, the Chancellor's decision to increase spending. Uh, I think a lot of us were expecting to see Austerity return. I think a lot of us was expecting a narrative around kind of balancing the public finances and using that as a pretext to kind of continue cutting public spending. And he didn't do that. You know, that story of continued investment combined with a really powerful story he told standing in Parliament about, you know, the sunny uplands, the new economy, the growth increasing at a much, much greater rate uh, than anyone expected, and his ability to do everything. Uh, So it was a really kind of positive first impression. And I think in the sort of week after, a lot of that has unraveled. And for me, the big story, uh, once we've done the detailed analysis, is that story of um, living standards and the huge squeeze in living standards. I think on the spending piece, what's clear is that, yes, we have had a kind of a step away from austerity, which I think is good news because we need cross-party support that that 10 years of austerity was complete folly and that we do need to invest in public services. But I think on the story of living standards, the budget was far, far weaker. There was the analysis that the Institute for Fiscal Studies did that showed that actually the tax rises meant that the average person would pay 3000 more. And then the combination of wages that were stagnant higher prices meant that the average person was 13,000 worse off. Um, And I think that was definitely not the message that the Chancellor wanted to give. But I think that is the story, quite frankly, of the budget. And for me, the sting was those at the lower end. Um, And the Chancellor did do some things on living uh, on uh, the national living wage, which was good news. They did some things on the taper rate of universal credit. So the amount of money that people can all good news. But actually, three quarters of the people um, on universal credit lost more from that £20 cut in uplift than they did from the measures in the budget. So a really poor story, I think, for the Chancellor and definitely not the story that he was trying to tell on the day. Hmm. Also returning to the bunker, welcome back to former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Alex. Um, Arthur, the Met Commissioner, Cressida Dick, says the number of terror investigations underway by police and MI5 is currently at record levels and has asked Londoners to be particularly vigilant in the run-up to Christmas. Is this an abundance of caution, do you think, or, or is there worrying intelligence there? I can understand why people 
often take these sorts of warnings a bit cynically, particularly Cressida Dix under a bit of pressure, her her um, performance over the uh, Sarah Everard case and so on. But I think this is probably should be taken at face value. If there are a record level of investigations, that means that there's a lot of things going on that we don't know about that we should be worried about. And, and we should probably take into account what she said. Of course, in practical terms, what can the ordinary citizen do isn't very much. So I I, I think that there, there's a risk with these sorts of warnings that, that, that people don't really know what the appropriate response is. Finally, we are delighted to be joined this week by Simon Mundy, a moral money editor for the Financial Times covering sustainability and author of the new book Race for Tomorrow. Welcome to The Bunker, Simon. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to be with you. Simon, you are actually at COP26, as can be evidenced from your um, <laughs> noisy background and from the fact that you're occasionally shunted out of um, the <laughs> corridor where you're standing. Um, we may we be rudely discuss... interrupted, as I mentioned to you. Yeah, so <laughs> that, that's fine. We, we'll take that to have someone in the heart of things. Um, <laughs> we will discuss content and politics in detail in a bit. But can you give us a feel of the atmosphere at COP26? It's very interesting. I mean, there are people from all over the world here. Um, I have concerns, to be honest, and this is just based on my rough sense. I have concerns about how many of those people are really speaking to each other. Personally, it seems to me as a business journalist, I think a lot of people from big business from the Western world are spending a lot of time talking to each other. Um, and they are in positions of great influence as to how this thing unfolds really inside of the, the wider climate conversation. So I do have some concerns about that. Um, it has been a bit chaotic. As you know, of course, a lot of people had a lot of trouble getting to Glasgow because the train system was, was hit by an unfortunate accident. So various people had to fly at the last minute and you're not meant to fly to a climate conference if you can help it. So yeah, it, was, it was a chaotic start. Um, took a long time for some people to get their accreditation sorted. To be honest, I, it's, it's less chaotic than I had expected. Perhaps you could say my expectations on that front were unfairly low. Um, but <laughs> I think there are a lot of people here who really have the right motivations, who really understand how serious the situation is and really want to achieve serious action, not just glad-handing and having fun. But there are also cocktail parties happening in Glasgow, which gives you a reflection <laughs> of how some other people are approaching it. The, the Oxford English Dictionary got a special updated edition this week dedicated to the language of climate change, and we have global heating, eco-anxiety, climate emergency, climate catastrophe, climate denialism, climate refugee, and even range anxiety in respect of electric vehicles among the new additions. Does the urgency and emotion of these terms reflect a real change in the debate, do you think? I think so. Um, I do think that the conversation has changed. So I started working on the book in terms of my preliminary research back in late 2017. And it was interesting, you know, I spoke with my, my agent at the time and we, we agreed that a challenge would be to tackle a subject that wasn't really top of the news agenda. It wasn't on the front page of the newspapers. People saw it as a bit marginal. Now, quite clearly, you can't say that today. So what's changed? Why do people seem to have a greater sense of urgency around it? One thing, it's, it's two words, actually, uh, Greta and Thunberg, 
I think <laughs> she she has had a phenomenal impact, and she she has yeah. her fans, and she has people who are not so keen on her. Um, but you cannot deny that she has had a massive impact on the conversation. There is something very powerful about young people, in many cases, actually children, who are marching for their future. You can't just write them off as as hippies or radicals because they're children, and that is a very yeah. very powerful voice that no one can really. Well, no, no normal person can just write off the voice of, of the children. Um, so that's been a very powerful thing. The other thing, um, I think we, we have seen the, the gradual impact. It, it, it sort of fed through over time the impact of the Paris Agreement. I think that has fed through into, because various commitments were made in Paris. They took time to really make themselves the full impact to be seen. Um, but we have seen an increase in in action and an even bigger increase in talk, which is good if it leads to action, from governments and businesses. That's another thing. And unfortunately, the third thing, the third big driver of the changing conversation and the increased sense of urgency is, as we all know, the past couple of years, there has been a, a terrible series of extreme weather events that has cost a large number of lives. Um, and no one can seriously deny the, the physical evidence of, of climate change we all see it all around us whichever country we're in and of course in some countries we see it in, in particularly stark ways so you take these things together um this is actually the first cop that, that i've attended but people i've spoken to who have attended many of them say that at least one thing you can say is that there is a greater acknowledgement of just how serious the situation is this week, the world's great and good descended on Glasgow, except Wolf Blitzer, who was last seen roaming the streets of Edinburgh, asking leaders used private jets and motorcades to get to what looked at times like the most carbon-intensive sleepover in history. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves, General Secretary of the UN Antonio Guterres starkly warned. Meanwhile, outside the hall, Boris Johnson stuck by cutting air passenger duty for domestic flights and could not rule out a new coal mine in Cumbria. The most urgent and affecting testimonies came from leaders and representatives of small nations at the real coal face of climate change, and it is precisely those places that our guest today, Simon Mundy, has visited over two years for his immense new book, Race for Tomorrow, Survival, Innovation and Profit on the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. Simon, what inspired this titanic project? One of the things that I make clear in the book is that I, I don't see myself as an activist. I think it's really important to have activists, and some of them have done fantastic work, but that's not my, my background. I'm a reporter. I'm, I'm a, a business reporter and a foreign correspondent. That's my background. Um, I've worked for the Financial Times since 2010 in, in Southern Africa, in the UK, in South Korea, uh, in India. Um, so that was the, the background that I came at this from. And, and it was really a realization. Like I, I can't say it was linked to a very specific thing. I think I had, I had, had a, a growing awareness of climate change. One thing I would point to is soon after I moved to India in 2016, I did some reporting on the impact of droughts in Maharashtra state, which is mm. in the west of India. It's the state that Mumbai sits in. Um, so that was the state that I lived in. And I went out to the countryside. I met farmers in that state. Farm, the, the, the farmer suicide rate in Maharashtra is enormous um, and it is, it is getting worse and 
the, the, the environment for farmers, the natural environment for farmers in Maharashtra is also getting worse. Increasingly severe droughts. When I spoke to meteorological experts in the state, they said, look at, look at the charts. I mean, the, the, the pattern now is so far outside its historical normal range. We are feeling the impacts yeah. of climate change. And at the same time, the suicide rate among farmers is, is skyrocketing. You know, so, so you, so you, 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 so I, I went out to the countryside and met some of these farmers who had had their livelihoods destroyed. And that was in 2016. And, you know, this was one of many things I was covering. I was principally covering business in India, actually. But I kept on thinking about this. And then one day it just suddenly hit me. This is obviously, as a reporter, this is obviously the biggest story of the century. Because not only is it about these, yeah. these terribly, you know, these really powerful and terrible human impacts on people like the farmers in Maharashtra and many, many other communities around the world, but it's also about the future balance of geopolitical power, the, the energy transition, which we are now having to undertake at breakneck speed in response to climate change. This will go a long way to deciding the balance of geopolitical power in the 21st century. Um, in business power, it's, it, it, it's changing absolutely everything. What bigger story could there be? Yes, there's no doubting the 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 gravity of the story, but at times the book feels like war reporting, you know, from the front line. So what I'm interested in is why was it important for you, instead of sitting behind a desk doing your research and, and talking about these things, why was it important for you to be there, to be there on the ground, to speak to the farmers and the fishers that are uh, battling with this? It's a really good question because obviously it would have been a much more comfortable couple of years to do the, do, to do it in that way. Um, and a very different book. <laughs> and a very different book. Um, and there are some very good books that have been written in that way. I think we need lots of different sorts of books. I think a lot of books have been written about climate change and most people have never read any of them. Uh, why not? Most people, people are busy. They, they work really hard um, when they're on holiday or they come home in the evening. They, they don't really want to read something that feels very heavy and hard work and dense. Now, some people do, but mo most people don't. And I think that's completely understandable. Um, and I think most people fairly or, or unfairly felt that that's what climate change books are like. And so I thought, how do you help those people to get to grips with it? Because the other thing is that everyone now wants to get to grips with this subject. Everyone is really interested in the subject. Everyone knows that, yeah, like I said, this is just obviously the biggest story of the time, but where do you start, right? It, it, it's so huge, um, so many facts and statistics, and it's hard to know where to begin. So I just felt that if you had a book which was filled with the stories of individual people, you are, you are addressing these big, big subjects through the stories of individuals because the, the individuals in the book, so many of them are people, like I was saying, who have been hit by the impacts of climate change. But I also had three hours talking to Prince Abdulaziz, the energy minister of Saudi Arabia, talking about what Saudi Arabia does when the oil market starts to decline. His voice is in there too. Um, you know, tycoon, a billionaire electric car tycoon, He Xiaopang in, in, in China, Guangzhou. His voice is in mm. there. So it, it, it's a really wide range of different people. And I felt through focusing on their individual stories, and you know, it's not my voice, because like I said at an event yesterday, there is no shortage of posh, white, male voices giving their opinion on things, right? Um, but, but, so I wanted to make sure the book was not that. Um, I wanted to convey the voices of other people with good perspectives.
The Maldives offer a fascinating example and paradox. I did some work there in a previous life, and entire communities are at risk of extinction, but the country's economy depends on tourism more than any other on earth. I think taking into account direct and indirect GDP, it's between 75 and 80% of the economy. So rich Westerners traveling on long-haul flights is both that country's only living and its most existential threat. How do you solve these conundrums? It's a very good question. In my opinion, the only way that we stop cooking the planet is to update capitalism, which sounds like a very grand and huge and terrifying thing, but climate change is huge and terrifying, so I don't think it's out of proportion. The, so one of the voices featured in the book is Hank Paulson. He was the Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush. He was the former CEO of Goldman Sachs. This is not a hippie, right? This is a real mm. right, right of center Republican markets guy. And he just said, look, we need to update the current system. And what's interesting to me is that you have really, um, the other day I, um, I heard a talk given by Al Gore. And he was saying the same thing. So you've got some on the left, some on the right in the US context, and of course in Europe as well. People all agree now in theory, we need to put a price on carbon, basically. Because at the moment, if you're a business, you have an incentive to try and save the planet, but you also have an incentive to make money. And you can make a lot of money still from fossil mm. fuels in today's economy. Yeah. So we need to change that. We need to make sure that the economic incentive and the moral incentive are aligned. And then that would go the same for the people who are flying to the Maldives. It would become very, very expensive to do that. In a net zero economy, you would have to probably, unless the planes, unless they really find a way to have carbon neutral aviation, which is far away at this point, you would have to get real carbon offsets. I it personally, I don't think that you can buy offsets on the market today. I don't think they are fit for purpose at all. And none of the experts that I speak to think. If you're buying offsets for your flight, you can get them on a lot of airline websites. That's nice. I mean, you are, you are helping to fund the conservation of forests, but you are not offsetting your flights. It's really important, I think, that people should understand that. But it's not impossible that we'd have that in the future. You devote a fascinating chapter to Munich, not a place one might think of as at the forefront of climate crisis, but it is home to one of the biggest reinsurers, Munich Re. And they say there has been a fundamental shift with huge implications. And this really struck me. They say the past is no longer a reliable guide to calculating future risk. And this might mean entire zones on the coast or close to forests or near rivers. And this is in, in north and west sort of, uh, you know, first world countries are becoming uninsurable. To what extent do you think issues like this will shift the debate on climate change away from something that is happening somewhere over there? That's a really important point, I think. And I do think that's something which the extreme weather events of the last couple of years, they've been hitting developed countries um, as well as developing countries. So it, it's those immediate impacts that are helping people to wake up to the problem um, and the economic effects. So someone, that, that there's one interesting voice um, in the book. So Munich Re, as you mentioned, they're, they're really interesting because they are... I think maybe, to my knowledge, I could be wrong on this, but to my knowledge, they are—they were the first of the really big global companies to start paying attention to climate change, as I, as I write mm. about in the book, way back in the 1970s. 
they they realized this. They, they actually had a meteorologist who they they hired. He was a PhD in meteorology. Who was doing was everything like on bits of paper. Exactly. It, it, it's, amazing. it's amazing. So I met someone. So he, he's retired now. Um, the guy who I interviewed and really profiled in depth in the book, Ernst Rauch, he, he joined in the 80s. And um, he actually, soon after he joined, he got Munich Re's second computer. The first one went to the CEO and he never used it. The second one went to Ernst. And I think it's in the book. I'm going to get this number wrong, but it was something like compared with the latest iPhone, his computer had, I think, 0.002% of the processing power. <laughs> but at the time, it was cutting edge. So they were investing in technology and they were using this technology to focus on how is how are the risks changing of the property that we insure in various places around the world. In 1992, Hurricane Andrew, huge hurricane, unprecedented economic damage in Florida. And a lot of insurance companies went out of business and they've learned lessons from that. So they're much better capitalized, mm. they assess the risk much better. But what Ernst was saying is exactly the point that you just made. It's okay for the insurance companies, according to him, um, you know, it, it's, um, we'll see if this checks out. He says, you're not going to see insurance companies going bust because they're really smart now about how they manage their risk. But what you might see is because they're so smart about managing their risk, if you live near a forest in California, or if you live near the coast in Louisiana or Florida, you might not be able to get insurance. And so then what happens very often is that the government gives you insurance, which sounds nice, right? It's the government looking after people. But there's someone else in the insurance sector I spoke to. This guy runs a hedge fund, which, which, uh, which invests in um, insurance-linked securities. So, you know, he's, he's doing very well for himself, but his, he had some interesting insights. And one of them was... It sounds great for the government to subsidize insurance um, for people who are living by the coast um, or near the forests. But actually, is that the best use of public resources? We have a limited amount of public resources. Should we be effectively giving people money to help them live in dangerous places? And especially given that some of them are actually quite rich and we're helping them to pay for insurance that really um, isn't, isn't justified at those rates? Or should we be encouraging people to move to safer places? Some really, really tough questions. And one of the points that I try to get across in the book is that there are no easy answers to this. And I think, to be honest, here at COP, um, you can hear there's a lot of conversation happening in the back. And some of the conversations that I've been hearing at COP and taking part in at COP, I've just been struck by how some people are already patting themselves on the back. I think this is especially in big business, to be honest. People are already patting themselves on the back about the progress that has been made. Look, some progress has been made, but we are still massively on the wrong track. And I think it's really important for people to realize that. So on that, today we have had a significant side agreement on deforestation. But many observers are saying that without China, Russia and India making meaningful, meaningful commitments on carbon emissions, we might get some nice peripheral deals like this so that everyone can claim it as a victory, but no real progress will be made. What do you think? Yeah, that's it's a really interesting point. I'm really glad you raised that because I think there's a potential for that conversation to go down a dangerous path. I actually think, unfortunately, there are some people out there who are actively trying to push it down a dangerous path. Okay, so what do I mean? When you finish reading my book, <laughs> read The New Climate War by Michael E. Mann. He's, he's probably the most influential climate scientist in the world right now. 
hugely respected um, by people in the field. And in his book, he talks about the new climate war. The old climate war was simply denying the science of climate change. And as yeah. we were talking about, no one can really do that anymore. It's just silly. I mean, it's just so obvious that we're changing the climate. So the new climate war is these sort of second-order arguments that people put out there to justify inaction. And there are many of them, which I won't go into all of them now, um, but they're all really interesting points to make, make in the book. And one of them is this argument that in the UK, for example, we're a small country, we're only 1% of global emissions, so it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter. There's no point, because China's going to keep on polluting. There's no point. No single country, even China. China can make the same argument. China could say, look, we're only 25% of global emissions. Whatever we do, 75%. You know, any country can make that whole argument. And the point, obviously, is you need international coordination. How do we get there? I think there's another name I want to mention here, William Nordhaus, winner of the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in this field. He talks about a carbon club because fundamentally – you are obviously not going to get nearly 200 countries coming together here in Glasgow or at any future COP to arrange an international carbon pricing framework. It's, it's just impossible. It's, it's not the sort of thing you get by unanimous consensus among 200 countries. But you can get a consensus between two countries or two jurisdictions. Yeah. So what Nordhaus talks about is what if the EU, and the, and the EU is sort of already doing it at the EU level, what if the EU and the US together started a club and it starts with just those two members and the rules of the club are we will have an independently credibly assessed pan economy right across the economy carbon price of let's say starting at a hundred dollars a ton and as long as you have a carbon all you have that's the only condition of membership is that and so as long as you have that carbon price that credible carbon price you're, you're part of the club and we put no carbon tariffs on your exports to our countries. But if you're not in the club, we do put those tariffs on. And look at how people would want to queue up to join the club. It would start with these sort of medium-sized countries that have a lot of trade with the EU or US, like Mexico, Canada, Turkey. These countries would say, well, you know, we might as well just join the club because we don't want to be hit by all these tariffs. And then one by one, people would come on board. That, I, I don't know if that's the answer, but it's the closest thing. It's the best-sounding answer I've heard so far. Hmm. Miata... Sir David Attenborough made a passionate speech in which he said that addressing climate change must go hand in hand with addressing global inequalities. Are economic issues inseparable from environmental ones? Should we be having this sort of conference at Davos? I think 100% they're inseparable. Um, and part of the reason I say that is environmental collapse, I think, is a symptom um, of our economic system, our economic model, an economic model that essentially said we can grow exponentially uh, with no considerations to the limits uh, to our planet, uh, that we can extract resources exponentially with no regard to the limits of the planet. And it's that extractive mm. model, I think, that has got us into the spine. You know, my organization, we talk about an economy that doesn't work for people and planet. And I think it's the same problem that sort of sits at the heart of the kind of issues that we need to get to on inequality that sits alongside uh, the issues that we need to get to on environmental collapse. I think the other key thing for me is, you know, the transition to net zero is possible and I can imagine a sort of technological solution that gets us there but but there is a path to net zero that's really bad for people and I think we've got to work really hard to ensure that social justice is fundamentally baked into the green transition and I don't think that happens organically I think it has to be proactive I think it has to be deliberate. 
Boris Johnson in the lead up to a conference implied that recycling household waste is, is a meaningless gesture. And, and there are many in the environmental lobby who say the shift of focus to personal responsibility is a sort of smokescreen for states and industry to evade their share of responsibility. What do you think? I think that's true. So look, th- there is obviously a role for individuals within this, and we're all going to have to shift our behaviours. But this is a big systemic issue that requires a systemic change. So, you know, the role of the collective and through that the state, I think, is absolutely profound. We look at this country, the government put out a net zero strategy, good things in there, but actually Mm. our capacity to deliver those things are hugely constrained if the government isn't willing to put its muscle behind it. And that's about regulation, that's about legislation, but that's about huge, large-scale public sector investment to unlock private investment, but also to smooth that pathway to a just transition. And I think that when people talk too much about individual responsibility, they're trying to duck the fundamental collective role that has to play its part in trying to get us to that transition. Arthur, As a former diplomat, you have experienced big summits like this. What sort of wrangling goes on behind the scenes at these events? Can rabbits be pulled out of hats or do we pretty much know how this will go from the sort of statements countries have already put in? No, I wouldn't say we do. There tends to be a two-stage process. So it's like 80% of the deal has been done before anyone's even arrived in, in Scotland for, for the actual summit. And that will have all been done by by diplomats uh, over the preceding uh, months. And, and that's where Alok Sharma came in, you know, flying around the world. And I think uh, there's a general view that, that he's done a reasonably good job of that. But it is also the case that the final bit down to the wire is almost always a room full of world leaders. And, and we'll all remember those photos that you used to see when, whenever it was Donald Trump, everyone looked very angry and seemed to be shouting at each other, which, of course, is not surprising. And so the the atmospherics of that bit at the end, when the world leaders are really haggling over the final elements of it, is incredibly important. Now, I think there are reasons to be nervous. One, because you don't have uh, President Xi of China there, although the Chinese system may be such that his negotiator can sort of carry sufficient authority to, to, to do what's necessary. And the other reason to be concerned is I think even Boris Johnson's greatest supporters might say that he doesn't carry a particularly sort of serious credible figure on the global stage. That may not be too important because ultimately, if President Biden really wants to push this and see it as his legacy, he might be able to do that. But of course, Biden's problem is that he doesn't actually have, uh, he don't ha- doesn't even have his own climate deal in, in the US sewn up because of his problems, particularly with Joe Manchin, the West, West Virginia senator. So I think there's a lot of these difficult atmospherics in the room, not to mention the relationship between Johnson and Macron, obviously being in, in a pretty difficult place at the moment that that may make it hard you see many put down the success of paris on the fact that the french aligned big players before cop 21 they were already sort of on the same page and they showed up for the photo opportunity but international relations between the west and the global south russia india china and even among western nations are much more fractious and complicated in 2021 can geopolitical rows be put to one side to to achieve progress on this or 
are we basically going to be hampered by the bickering that goes on in other policy areas? Well, you would hope, of course, that everyone would raise their eyes to the hills and say this is rather bigger than, you know, the fate of fishing fleets in the Atlantic or even the issues over the AUKUS submarines deal between Australia and, and, and the US and the UK. However, I think experience tells us that you can't make those things go away. I do think that, for example, the AUKUS deal, whatever one thinks of it, the timing was pretty awful because you could have waited till after COP. You could have delayed the, the announcement for, for you know six months. You could have got through COP and then both the French relations with its Western allies, but also China feeling that America's putting a lot of pressure on it in the sort of geo mm. geopolitical security space would have been reduced. So clearly, it, we, if, if things don't work out, we can't blame it all on any one thing. But undoubtedly, I think these geopolitical rows are difficult and China has made it pretty clear that it's not interested in separating out wider questions from the key climate questions. Simon, to a certain extent, every government claims to have spent the, the pandemic listening to the science. This seemed a perfect springboard for rapid progress to be made in, in the environment uh, area. And yet COP26 is shaping up to not break the ground it needs to. And I cannot help but think that the emergence of a populist rejection of internationalism is a factor. Is environmental action simply incompatible with nationalist populism? I think, for one thing, you it, it's interesting to see how positions on certain sorts of issues tend to be grouped together. So, for example, if you believe in low rates of taxation, you probably, you know, you, you might also have uh, a certain approach towards multilateral uh, coordination. So basically, you know, the right of centre, there are certain things that, that are um, associated with, with the right wing and with the left wing. And I think with the shift towards nationalist populism, it does tend to go along with... Um, a rejection of internationalists, uh, international cooperation. I think, unfortunately, you can see that happening. It's a very obvious example of it. If you look at Britain's hosting of, of COP26, I think in, in many ways, Britain is a good choice um, to host a major international event. But because of the rise of economic populism and, uh, and, and just general nationalist populism, you had Brexit. Uh, because of that, we are currently in this very strange, in, in, in my opinion, very embarrassing, um, but certainly objectively very strange diplomatic position where Britain is trying to it seems to me, stand up to Emmanuel Macron and and show and be, be all defiant and, and, and quite confrontational in various ways on the diplomatic stage. And that is obviously not conducive to the, the requirement to try to foster international agreements among this large number of countries, and France is one of the most important of them. I was speaking to a... Uh, like I said, this is my first COP. I was speaking to an analyst who's been to all of them for a long time. I don't think he went to the very first one 30-odd years ago, but he's been going to a lot of them. And he was saying, he's British, and he was saying the comparison for him, as someone who cares about the climate and also as a British person, the comparison for him 
between the organization of Paris in 2015. This was a, a week before COP also. Comparison for him between Paris in 2015 and COP26 in Glasgow this year, it was, it was painful in his opinion. And, and, and one of the reasons he gave was the lack of really coordinated and, and, and pretty much universal support from within the government and within the ruling party. You know, his impression was that in France in 2015, the whole government was behind it. It was a top priority um, for, for everyone in government. And in his opinion, that's really not the case for, for this government. Now, of course, some members of the government, I do think, are working really hard on this and they really care. His, his opinion, and I think he's probably right, is that that's not universal right across the government and it's obviously not the case right across the conservative party um and i think you know you you point to the rise of uh, of a certain nationalism i think that, that that's part of it um it's complicated of course but i do think that's part of it With the amount of effluent going into our rivers and coastlines at the moment, one would think access to our fishing waters would not be the most desirable trade prize. Not a bit of it. It seems free de merde is a desirable catch. The row between the UK and France over Jersey fishing licences reached a crescendo on Monday, with France threatening to close its ports to British vessels and even threats of blockades. Johnson demanded Macron take it all back. Macron responded, non, rien de rien, non, je ne regrette rien, which Politico reliably informs me translates to, we intend to steal your haddock, English pigs. <laughs> At the 11th hour, Jersey granted another 49 provisional licenses, on top of the 66 it did last week. France agreed to postpone retaliation. The scallop vessel that had been detained in Lièvre was released and negotiations resumed. Arthur, behind the sabre-rattling in the express headlines, which side do you think has the more legitimate grievance here? It would be very tempting to say these Brexiters are ghastly and they've got you know no leg to stand on, but trying to be as dispassionate as possible, I think on the very specific issue to do with processing the paperwork of French fishing vessels, given that it's a new process because it comes out of the Brexit process. It is not impossible that there are bureaucratic difficulties. I'm in no position to judge whether or not the civil servants in Jersey are operating swiftly and efficiently, but it's quite possible that they're just not very good at processing this stuff. And, of course, it's possible that they were looking for uh, objections that they could raise. But I think it's important to think about the global issue. And, and by that, I just mean if you're a French fisherman or running a French fishing business, for a start, it wasn't your choice that Britain would leave the EU and then upend the existing situation. And of course, if you are a European politician from any country, it wasn't your choice that Britain left the EU. And then having done so, after having signed its uh, Northern Ireland Protocol and its Trade and Cooperation Agreement, that it within, within a few short months, it would deliberately and flagrantly ignore the terms of those agreements. So I think you've got a context. Long before this fishing thing had broken out, people who are experts on Anglo-French relations, such as the former ambassador there, Lord Ricketts, were saying he'd never seen relations between Britain and France as bad as they are now. That was before the current crisis. So ultimately, 
you know, we, we've got no reservoir of goodwill. We, Britain, have no reservoir of goodwill in Paris. And of course, it, now it's completely empty. France also has a presidential election coming up in April of next year. That's surely an influence on Macron's behaviour too, isn't it? I think definitely. But uh, from from what I've seen, I, it, it is front page news here, the, this dispute. It isn't front page news in France. So yes, of course, it, it's there in the background. Macron is fighting, as so many French presidents find themselves doing, fighting a rearguard action against not just one, but this time two hard right candidates, both Marine Le Pen and this new chap Zemmour, who's sort of come out of nowhere mm. and makes Le Pen look positively liberal. <laughs> that will influence his behaviour. But of course, you know, France, France yields to no one in what it sees as its defence of national interests. And there, there is no French politician who would entertain for 10 seconds the idea that EU membership prevents them from being able to relentlessly pursue their national interests. And of course, this is what they're doing at the moment. Miata, this row, I think, obviously helps Johnson domestically too. If skirmishes like this boost leaders' domestic toughness credentials, so if they're domestically advantageous, is this the Brexit shape or things to come, just an endless series of rows and threats over this, that? I think in the short term, yes. I hope in the long term, no. Um, and I think part of the reason why it helps him in the short term is, you know, Brexit was the defining project and sits so close to him. And I think he kind of wants to remind people of it. I also think a lot of the issues, yes, I think all both sides are overreacting and acting a little bit ridiculous, if you ask me, but at the heart of it, is the fact that there's a deal there that was not the right deal that the you know the prime minister either signed it not knowing what he was signing up yeah it was exactly, rushed um, or or just didn't know the detail and I think part of the saber rattling is just trying to obfuscate that and trying to mask that and you make it about the French mm. being unreasonable and the French being the French rather than the fact that actually you have a deal that's unraveling because the government didn't do the job it was supposed to. But if one takes a look at the bigger picture. And I'm not, you know, in any way trying to underplay the problems for people for whom this is a living. But in the grand scale of things, this is a tiny sector. And it's been allowed to dictate foreign policy on this, while huge issues like mutual recognition in finance are not even talked about. When do we get to the meat and potatoes of the deal, as it were, instead of arguing about the the, the amuse-bouche. Yeah, I mean, look, it's really bizarre. There was something about taking control of our waters that I think was symbolic of the project. And in some respects, I think a lot of this is trying to animate that. Um, but, but I think mm. you're completely right. You know, the thing I always kept come back to, and I think, I think the thing that we have to continue talking about is that the heart of this Brexit project was a promise to make people's lives better. They've got to get the economics to work around this. And that means you've got to have a deal that works for the economy, that works for trade, which, by the way, has taken a massive hammering, and we're not talking about that, because otherwise mm -hmm. people will be poorer as a consequence of this. And I think there is a kind of political piece that tries to... Uh, blindside us with totemic things like either suddenly we can start measuring in imperial measurements again, great, uh, <laughs> or our passports a particular colour, or, you know, we've got access to our waters. And I think all of that is trying to 
hide the fact that the economics of this thing won't stack up. Going back to the start of the budget, you know, the government's watchdog was very clear. The economy, the impact of Brexit is going to be far worse than the impact of COVID, leaving our economy 4% smaller than it would have been otherwise. And so I think the government's trying to dance around that, which is why we'll hear a lot of nonsense, but we're not hearing about the meat that will matter to people's lives. And I think it's really important that people always take it back to that. Arthur, meanwhile, on another side of this same quarrel, we're beginning to see loyalist paramilitary violence in Northern Ireland to, I quote, protest the protocol. Can the UK government afford to cave in to those demands, especially since a clear and increasing majority in Northern Ireland actually supports the protocol, which is what many, many people forget? Well, I think the government have shown very clearly that they can ignore those voices rather easily. And of course, Northern Ireland's politics is strange in one particular way, in that nobody in Northern Ireland elects Westminster politicians who are part of the government. Uh, you know, not, you, you, don't, you don't vote for a Labour or Conservative um, uh, candidate in, in your elections there. So other than the very rare occasion when the DUP was propping up Theresa May's government, you don't have that direct voice, which is, of course, one of the reasons why Brexit is so problematic mm. there. I, I actually think it's a, a low level of loyalist violence is rather helpful in an extremely cynical way, let me clarify, for the government, because it allows them to turn to the EU and say, look, this is how difficult this protocol is proving. You've put a border through the middle of our country in the Irish Sea. You know, let's let's not linger on the fact that this was something was all agreed to. But this is this is the way that particularly David Frost, it's easy to see he's got this very confrontational approach. And, and he, he goes on about the Northern Ireland Protocol as, as if it was, you know, something that, that was a, a flagrantly outrageous and, and impossible to understand how it could have happened at all. So, so that low level of violence is very convenient for them. And, and I, I, and to some extent, you have to accuse them of in, having encouraged it. It is 300 days since insurrectionist Trump supporters stormed and briefly invaded the US Capitol. Four Hours at the Capitol is an HBO film chronicling that fateful day, now on BBC iPlayer, with deeply affecting testimony and disturbing new footage. Arthur, how did you feel watching the documentary? Well, it's an incredible watch because you effectively become one of the protesters. You follow these people who at the beginning are sort of getting a bit worked up. They've gone to the demo and and then they gradually surge forward, eventually bashing down doors, breaking windows and rushing through the corridors. And of course, some some died, some policemen were killed and an enormous amount of violence and, and damage to America's political fabric was, was clearly done. So I, I found it amazingly interesting and particularly so for me because a secret and soon-to-be-revealed Podmasters project relating to this very subject is something I've been working on in recent weeks. So Ooh. watch this space. Ooh, we await impatiently. I have to say, I felt proper fight-or-flight anxiety watching it. It made made a knot in my stomach. Was there anything in it that was new to you, that surprised you? I think, actually, the, the biggest thing is clearly... Police violence is a real thing in America. A lot of people die at the hands of the American police. But what really struck me watching it, which which was obvious from the reports at the time, but I guess until you really see it, is the incredible restraint. You had all these policemen, every single one of them, 
armed with a you know with a lethal weapon facing literally thousands of angry people some of whom themselves may have been carrying guns mercifully they were they weren't firing them but many of them were carrying clubs and other types of you know blunt force weapons and actually the restraint showed by the capital police and there are not many countries in the world i think where this could have ended in that way the the most countries i think there would have been a bloodbath Miata, do you think the events of January 6th have actually changed US politics? I, I was shocked watching it. Firstly, how much worse it was than I remembered it. Secondly, that it was only a matter of months ago. We seem to have moved on from something quite stri- striking very, very quickly. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. And the bit of it that really struck me, um, one of the police officers, Mike, who was sort of being kind of battered and tasered, and he thought that was it. And um, he says that the thing that he said was, I have kids. And he was hoping that the sort of humanity of people would be the thing that saved him. And it was the thing that saved him. And it reminded Mm. you that there were just a lot of ordinary people in that crowd that were incredibly angry um, and and carried away by that sort of sense of anger and injustice. Um, And I think there is something humbling, but also really scary about that. And that's why, bizarrely, something like that should have been a huge rupture in US politics. And I don't think it is. I don't think it has been. I think the fault lines that were there before it are still there now. I think the anger uh, that was there before it, and the anger was in part about an election that people thought was stolen, but I think its roots go much deeper than that. Um, it's a deep anger at the kind of economic and political settlement that people think they have and that they thought that Trump was some sort of salvation from. I think all of that is there. Um, and actually the support for Trump still holds. Um, His hold over the Republican Party is still there. And the kind of reckoning that I think needs to happen to shift US politics in a way that deals with the legitimate concerns I think people have about the social and political settlement, I don't think that's happened yet. I think we're treading water. And I suspect there will be some other rupture before it kind of evens itself out. My own observation would be that it was impossible to watch without the words toxic masculinity sort of flashing in front of my eyes every three minutes because, oh my God, those people are just so classically angry white men, so classically fervently believing their own victimhood. Some of the lawmakers the documentary uh, spoke to said they were genuinely worried that if they had left the capital that day and there were buses there to collect them, Trump would have declared martial law and the results would never get certified. I mean, is it an indication of just the craziness of that period that this was a realistic possibility in people's minds in the United States of America? I mean, it's incredible. Um, and I think it's quite easy to forget, or or maybe we're all sort of collectively traumatised by watching it, that we are sort of blanking it out. But I mean, it was a completely insane part time in in the politics. And some of the things that he did and said and became normalised, you sort of look back now and it's, 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 it's staggering. And I think the question for me is, could it happen again? And I think it could. Hmm. Uh, And I think that's really sobering. And I think for progressives, that is something that I think we need to kind of confront. Um, And I don't think it was just a 
feature of the US. I think it could happen here. I mean, it's not so long ago that our politics was completely mad and they, you know, in the heat of Brexit and prorogation of parliament and all of that, you know, and it reminds you that the things that we normalize that makes our democracy make sense, that feels that there is some sort of sanity in the way that people conduct themselves, that you hope that people act with good faith. That's a kind of given. I think all of that is being undercut. And I think all of that is up for grabs. And I think, you know, for those of us that believe in that stuff, we've probably got to fight a bit harder for it. Simon, you come into contact with climate deniers and conspiracists in your work. Many Americans still believe the election was stolen. How do you deal with that? How do you get through to people who believe in deep state conspiracies so fervently, who who doubt the scientific consensus of something? I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. Um, the thing that I find, so again, I've I've never lived yet in in the U.S. I don't consider I follow U.S. politics um, pretty obsessively because it's so interesting. I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but when it comes to the climate change side of things, what I find is really helpful is just to sort of take this almost Socratic approach and just ask questions. Don't give statements because mm. if you get in statements, you you swiftly get into an argument. Um, but if you ask questions, so the question that I like to ask is, do you think that uh, smoking tobacco can cause lung cancer? I've never met anyone who doesn't think that. Right? So they'll always say yes. And then you say, well, why, why do you think that smoking tobacco causes lung cancer? And people will say, well, it's been proven. And I'll say, so what is the difference? Can, can you explain why you... You accept the scientific consensus on tobacco and lung cancer, but you don't accept the scientific consensus on climate change. And you keep asking those questions. They'll say, well, because the science of climate change is has been politicized, unlike the science of smoking. So why do you think that? Right. And you just take you keep on asking questions because the point is that it always breaks down and you don't want to make people feel stupid. You must never do it in a patronizing way because often, unfortunately, look, I've benefited from a really good private education. Right? I'm very conscious of how much of a privilege and unfair advantage that is. So if I, and, and very often, disproportionately, the kind of people who are denying climate science have not benefited from the best education that their country has to offer. So if I, with my background, go in, even implying that I just think these people are idiots, A, I don't think they're idiots. And B, that's not helpful, right? But if you just ask these constructive conversations, say, why do you think that? And you're just planting the seeds of something. But it's really important, I think, not to get sucked into arguments. And I think more more broadly in the, the climate conversation, I think what's needed is frank and respectful conversations. And the problem that I have is you have a lot of frank conversations that are not respectful. So, for example... There was, um, when Ben Van Burden, the CEO, was appearing at a, I think it was a TEDx event uh, in Scotland quite recently, there was a climate activist who um, sort of came on the stage and you know, spoke to him very forcefully um, and you know, very much questioning his morality as a human being. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing her for doing that necessarily. It's just that um, that's what I'd call a conversation that was frank, but sort of not obviously respectful in the normal use of the term. Mm. And then you've got a lot of other conversations that are happening. Most of these business dinners and cocktail parties, which are very respectful because everyone's being very nice to each other, but they're not frank. They're not actually talking yeah. about how big the problems are that we have. What we need is frank and respectful conversation. And then we start to get somewhere. 
And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's now time for Escape Routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and miscellaneous activities that have soothed our panellists' minds away from the corybantic world of politics and prospects of environmental Armageddon? Miata? So I've just uh, finished Succession Season 2 and I'm about to start Succession Season 3, which I'm very delighted about. It's giving me maximum escapism at the moment from all things politics. How good is it, right? It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Arthur, how about you? Well, I actually just recently uh, watched, uh, there's a, f- a new film out with Benedict Cumberbatch called The Courier, which depicts a true story, a sort of Cold War espionage drama, You're very much up my street. But it's, it's very good. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating story of, of, of this chap, Oleg Penkovsky, who was a Russian double agent who arguably um, saved the world from nuclear war at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You always have the best suggestions. How about you, Simon? I have done nothing but work for quite a long time. In the <laughs> it's not my normal style, by the way. I'm actually quite a lazy person, but um, my work has really taken over my life, so I'd say. I just want to really, really reiterate this recommendation, recommendation for Michael Mann's book. Uh, full disclosure, I have an incentive to be nice about his book because he was nice about my book. Um, but I'd already read his book before any of that. It's, it's a great book. It's really helpful, The New Climate War by Michael Mann. Just to understand, and especially you know, to understand the science, to understand the debate, um, that, that surrounds what we need to do about climate action. But also you start to recognize all these people who are pushing back against serious climate action. You start to recognize it's a playbook that he identifies in the book. And I, I really think if you have any interest in climate change, read his book. It's great. I feel bad about my escape route now because uh, I've been watching the first 10 seasons of The Walking Dead to get to the 11th, which is the 11th and final one, which is out now. And and I think the fact that the zombie apocalypse offers respite from today's world is rather telling. <laughs> and that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Miata Fanbule. Thanks for having me. To Arthur Snell. Thank you. And to our special guest, Simon Mundy. Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And I'll be back with a new Culture Bunker on Saturday. Remember, if you like this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right there in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise, and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You will earn our gratitude and a shout-out at the end of the podcast. To wit, here are this week's... Hello, and many thanks from me to Jim Driscoll, David Marriott, and Human Singh. And its best wishes and many thanks from me to Daniel Sladen, David Bloom, and George Ballantyne. And all the best from me to Culture Bunker, Emmy Grace, David Turner, Steve Noble, and Kevin Folks, aka DJ Food. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu with Arthur Snell and Miata Farnbiller. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.